Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School in the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Hello, good morning. Chambers, sit down. Come on, no fraternizing. Good morning. Good morning. I love, I love just how... I guess that's a scary spot to sit in. I'm not sure. Uh, My name is Mike. Welcome uh, to Vox. If this is your first time with us, you can find out more about us at voxoc.com. We're excited that you are here this morning. And uh, we've got got a lot to do, actually. Uh, Easter is in a couple of weeks. I don't know if you know, but that is coming. And ready or not... Easter is coming. We're going to do uh, baptisms for the first time in our uh, little church. And um, if you've never been baptized, uh, I want to encourage you to go to voxoc.com and sign up uh, just so we, we know how warm to make the water. So uh, let, us, let us know. We want you to sign up. Um, it's a, it's a, a big deal. And for generations, Easter Sunday has been the Sunday when baptisms publicly take place. Uh, so we're super excited that you would be a part of that. Also, uh, we finally have nailed down Good Friday. So look at me, look at me. Not for too long, but just briefly. Okay, we're meeting, we're doing our Good Friday service at a cemetery. And, um, and uh, to understand why, you'll actually have to show up. Um, there's not going to be child care, just to be clear. It's a, we're not using like the, the crypt over here for... <laughs> The little ones or something. So uh, if, you, if you can arrange babysitting, I encourage you to do that. Um, maybe age seven or so, uh, depending on how sensitive your seven, eight-year-old is, we're, we're going to be talking about um, what exactly it is that Jesus saves us from. And so we thought meeting in a cemetery would be a very interesting uh, way to do that. And so we're actually going to walk, we're, we're going to have stations, we're going to walk through it. Uh, and then we'll have um, some time to be together uh, briefly. Um, and it's just an interesting, it's this, it's this tiny cemetery. It's an historical landmark. We had tons of red tape to get it. But we thought that would be an interesting way uh, to remember uh, what it is that Good Friday represents. So that is at 6.30, no child care. You can find out, go to voxoc.com Easter for all the details, for even what these trees represent, why they're there besides just looking cool. Uh, so that's that, all right? So cemetery. I thought that, I was like, you know, I think that'll be kind of interesting um, to, to, uh, to experience Good Friday. And then Easter services, 9 and 11, and, uh, and then we'll do baptisms in the middle. Sound good? Man, 9 o'clock, you guys... I'm glad I come in fired up because I got I got to carry us always, always, and that's fine. You know what? That is fine. I got big shoulders and big other things. I mean, just in general. But um, it's not exactly what I wanted to say there. Uh, I was just be more meaning. Well, forget. It. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. All right. Um, so we are uh, in the middle. Uh, doing these things called table fellowships, right? You've nonstop, you've heard about these things. And um, table fellowships are ways in which we try to practice one of the central ministries of Jesus, which was eating meals with people and extending acceptance, extending kinship, 
um, to people that, you know, normally were outside kind of the boundaries of respectable religious society. Um, So what we do is that we gather around in Orange County, and um, you sign up uh, because we have table fellowships all all over, and it's simply meal and conversation. And a lot of people raised in church are like, "Uh, but where's the Bible study, and where's the small group? And we're like, nope, Uh, it's, it's meal and conversation. People outside the church love this stuff because they're like, oh yeah, this is kind of how it's supposed to be. Um, we, have, we have one specifically for 18 to 26-year-olds, but other than that, they're all just sort of mix and match. And I wanted to have a couple people share about what these are like, because we're finding the introverts in the crowd aren't huge fans of sitting down with a room full of people they don't know and having to get to know them. And so we're robbing you of that excuse by sharing a bit about what these are like. So um, Amy, come out. Doug, come on out. This is Amy and Doug. Say hello. Hello. See, they're out there. They're out there. They're a little seepy, but they're out there. All right, so Amy hosts one of these in? Uh, Brea and Fullerton. Talk, the, talk oh, in the sorry. mic. Sorry. Yeah, oh. Brea and Brea Fullerton. Brea and slash Fullerton. Yeah. All right, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, myself and three other boxers, uh, Carly, Lisa, and Chad, who might be here, um, we co-hosted a couple of table fellowships together. And to be honest, I didn't know what to expect going into it. Um, it's not every day that you have, you know, or I have um, strangers come over and, and share a meal. But um, <clears throat> we didn't want to set an agenda for the evenings. We uh, just wanted to create a really casual and comfortable atmosphere for people to come, hang out, eat, and get to know their neighbors. And um, what was really nice is what I realized, I think the simplicity of the setup um, really loud conversations and interactions to happen kind of organically. I think as opposed to maybe a Bible study or um, a, you know, a kind of a topic-driven evening where we might have preconceived ideas about, you know, how we should behave or what meaning we should extract from it or um, how the time should go, um, people were able to, yeah, just organically kind of find connecting points and uh, converse. And it was really cool to watch people bond as the evening went on. Um, in these pockets of conversations. We had a couple. I know Doug was in one of them where it was a smaller group, and then we had a larger group where um, we kind of broke out in different um, areas where we chatted. But, yeah, I think in general it was just um, a really great time. And I met several people who lived just blocks from me who also attend Vox. I had no idea. So now seeing, you know, putting names to faces on Sundays and saying hello is really cool. I think one of the challenges, and maybe Doug can speak to this, um, for attendees is that, you know, I think the ambiguity of the time can feel a little bit anxiety-provoking because, you know, yeah. But um, what we found was that I think most of us really desire um, a greater sense of community and belonging and, and being known. And I really think um, table fellowships can be a springboard to that. For me, personally, I think what's the coolest about it is that um, I don't think there's anything you can come and say about yourself or where you are in life and kind of disqualifies you from, from participation. And I think in that way, um, it, it, you know, Table Fellowships, it's kind of like an extension of Vox on Sunday. So I encourage you guys who are thinking about signing up to go ahead and, and give it a try. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Great job. 
Hi, I'm Doug, and uh, like Amy said, I was able to, um, my wife, uh, we have two children, we got signed up for the one in Fullerton, and Amy was there along with uh, Chad and Lisa were hosting, and it was, it was kind of funny because we'd only been going here for three weeks at the time, and my wife's like, hey, I want to get this signed up so we can, you know, meet some people and, you know, make it feel more like a, you know, a family in the community that's always talked about, and so... You know, by my nature, I run a little bit early on everything, so um, we pull up right at 6 o'clock, and we're like, I don't think anyone's here yet. Uh, so, you know, being a little bit courteous, we did the drive around the block, check out the neighborhood to make sure that we weren't too early for them if they were getting stuff ready. And then when we walked in, there was already people there, and it was totally comfortable. Um, like I said, we have a 3- and a 4-year-old, so it was cool. We brought them in, and they had some older kids that had a half pipe in their backyard, trampoline, and cornhole set up, and... It was they were off to the races, so it made it totally comfortable for them to go out and play and us to feel comfortable to get to meet the people that were there. And we just kind of hung out and talked and got to know, like, like she said, in our group it was pretty small. I think there was only nine, ten people total, which was kind of nice just to be able to really get to know those people in that night. And then we got around the table and enjoyed some good food. It was delicious. And like she said, the conversations were totally organic. We were able to talk about, you know, the, the normal stuff. Hey, what do you do for work? Get to know each other a little bit better. But then as time went on, we found out we had a lot of commonalities, you know, differences that we got to talk about. And uh, at our group, it was really funny because it seemed like everyone was really intelligent. Everyone was, like, in their master's programs or all this stuff. And so that's every, that's every table fellowship, I was bro. like, man, everyone every. here is so smart. We were like, yep. Chad and I were at the end. We were like, oh, okay, you know. But uh, <laughs> so it was a lot of fun just to get to know everyone. And then that next Sunday, as we're walking in, I see Amy first thing away. And so it was just that friendly face to be able to come up and say hi as you know, it's only our fourth week here. So it was one of those things as we drop our kids off, we see Lisa in there, and we know that we know someone that's watching our kids on every Sunday. So it's just a really cool thing to be able to meet the people that you're sitting next to every week here to, you know, make this place feel a little bit smaller. Um, and when you come back to the events, it just makes it, you know, fun to be able to see those people and get to talk to them a little bit more and ask them, you know, more questions about how their life's going. So uh, I recommend if you haven't done it, um, join in one of them, just sign up, and uh, don't feel bad if you're right on time. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Go ahead, take that. He said leave it there. Doug and Amy, thank you very much. Um, so, so, again, it, we know it's ambiguous. That's why we wanted a couple people to share. It's just dinner and conversation, and that's all it is. And so um, we think kitchen tables can change the world um, when hospitality uh, in the name of Jesus is displayed. So that's what we're, what we're after. Um, we are, are going to look at some questions this morning. As always, we start with Q&A. Um, you guys are ridiculous in terms of the great questions you ask. We're huge fans of doubters and skeptics and people that are curious. And um, so anyway, that's the number you text into. And then uh, let's go. Andy, fire it up. Since we just finished going through John 3.16, I think it would be appropriate for us to sing Don't Stop Believin' by Journey Together as a Congregation. <laughs> Do you see the intelligence sitting behind this question? All right, punch it. All right, we're going to sing together. Come on. Just a small town boy. Just a small town girl. Oh, living in... Come on, let me hear it. He took the midnight train going A little louder. Just a city Just boy. A city there we go. That's the one I was ready for. Born and raised Born in, South, and Detroit. in South, Detroit. South Detroit. He took the midnight train going 
little piano, give me a little piano. No, 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 you gotta let it go to the whole thing. Nice. Can you fast forward? I, smell a wine and cheap I want to get to the don't stop believing part. Alright, give me some drums. Give me some drums right now. Come on. We'll get there. Those shadows searching in the night. Okay. Street light. OC lights. Just get to the chorus for crying out loud. My goodness. Oh, come on. It, yeah, it goes on and on, for sure. I just want the chorus, Andy. was underwhelming. All right. All right, we're done. Oh, good Lord, that was awful. That is the longest introduction in the history of the world. All right, so we'll cue that up a little better for second service, but you got to enjoy so much of the song. That goes on and on and on. All right. Uh, by the way, hello, Facebook Live. We have people streaming. Hello, Marshalls. Hello from uh, Auburn, California. They were texting me earlier, and they're like, hey, we're tuning in. So I can't imagine. It's glorious here. I can't imagine how much better it is on Facebook to have just witnessed that. All right, question number two. How do we honor our mother and father? How do we honor our elderly as we honor our mother and father? When our own revere with honor and respect, then who can you really trust and rely on in this world? Parents emotionally and physically abused us and abandoned and disowned us. If you can't even trust or rely on your own mother and father, whom are you to? Is there any more to that one? Okay, I think what the question is, because we were talking about uh, how do we honor and revere the, the generation that's come before us? And I think the question is, well, and the analogy is, so, so you would treat them like your mother and father. If your mother and father weren't all that great, then how do you honor uh, people? And so when we talk about honoring our mother and father, first of all, realize this was a command given 
to adult Hebrews, right? This was given to the Israelite community. This is not just a kid thing. This was an adult thing too. Secondly, in, in Hebrew, the word honor means to give weight to. to uh, so, so the way you would um, like measure things was always you would weigh them. So often in the Old Testament, you know, it would say like you, you tithe two shekels according to the sanctuary shekel. And what that meant is there were scales everywhere. And so to honor something means to give it its appropriate weight. Now, one of the things that we can distinguish is honoring the position of mother and father and honoring the reality of their mothering and fathering. So it's kind of like the president. If you were a huge Obama fan, it was easy to honor the, the office of the presidency and the reality of the presidency, whereas now you may have a difficult time honoring the reality, but you can honor the office. And, and for those of you who are Trump supporters, vice versa, correct? Correct. So, so the office of mother and father, the, the, the position of mother and father is worthy of honor. The, the people that God used to bring you into the world. The reality of mother, mothering and fathering, however, should be given whatever appropriate weight it's worth. In other words, if there was very little mothering and fathering and there was abuse, then very little weight should be given to their mothering and fathering in terms of the reality. We're truth tellers. Honor your mother and father does not mean that you pretend it was perfect. It doesn't mean that you pretend that stuff didn't happen. Because we are children of our father, our father commands us to tell the truth. And part of that truth is honoring the position of mother and father, even if we can't honor in the same way the reality of their mothering and their fathering. And the working out of forgiveness for their imperfection, as our, all of our therapists will tell you, is one of the most central parts of uh, discipleship as we get older and older and into marriage and family ourselves. So, yes, I think we are to honor the position of mother and father and then give whatever the reality of mothering and fathering was given to us that appropriate weight. For some, it was amazing, and for that, be thankful. For others, it wasn't amazing. And so we're not obligated to pretend that it was. Make sense? Andy, fire up, don't stop. No, I'm just kidding. Third, I like that a core conviction of Vox is to be a church that exists to bless the nations, to serve and love the outsider. I've heard it said that the church is supposed to be a battleship, be on a mission, but not a cruise ship focused on pleasure of those aboard. With that said, what steps are in the works to equip, support, and train those inside Vox on how to be missional, and what can I do to contribute? I love that last. That's awesome that you would say it that way. Um, here... Here you go, all right? Again, man, I, I just feel so lame answering all the questions like this, but here is the answer. You do not need equipped, supported, or invited to be missional. All you need to do is to be kind and prayerful. That is literally it. So, here's your training, all right? Are you ready? Get to know your neighbors. I am on, so we live in this section of uh, Brea uh, that is predominantly Asian, and, um, and, and uh, the redheads stick out a bit, so does yours truly, uh, and I am on a single-minded campaign to wave to every single person, and I, I rarely get waves back, all right? I just want you to know I'm out there, and it, I'm not, I mean, it's not because it's Asian, it's just because I, we don't know each other. There's nothing, this community's built so that everyone just goes straight into their garage, 
So we put a basketball hoop in front. We've gotten written letters from the association that we have ignored. Um, we're playing football in the street, uh, and we're waving. It's a ruthless campaign to wave. I'm serious. And, and we've gotten to know maybe five or six neighbors. The other, na- the, the other uh, morning, I was going for a walk, and there was a neighbor who had a lizard in her house, and she was screaming about this lizard that was in her garage, excuse me, and so I ran over and got the lizard out. That's Joanne, and so I take notes about who, where the neighbors are and where they live, and I have this thing in my phone where I'm like getting to know them, and then over the summer, I see table fellowships, it's just to be a picture of what you do, so we're going to throw a, 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 a barbecue for our neighbors, and we'll know enough to have them invited, so there should be enough Synergy there. I mean, like the Nicholsons do stuff like this already with their neighbors. I mean, this is, missional is easy. You just got to be awake. You're surrounded. D- determined to bless. Like, just give verbal affirmation to the people you work with tomorrow and the people you're in school. I mean, that's it. Just, I mean, it is so easy to stand out today in our culture of, uh, of unkindness and our culture of judgment. It is so easy. So, there's your training. Wave to people. Get to know your neighbors. Learn to be curious and ask questions. Now, we'll talk more about this and give more examples, but there's no program that's going to equip you and train you if you're not somebody that realizes there are burning bushes all around you every day that God's inviting you into. And so I deeply, deeply believe mission just sits and ministry sits all around us, but most of us are too focused on our to-do lists and whatever else to, to be awake and to pay attention. And so I just think basic things, kindness, gratitude, humility, and they make us stand out with with such sharp relief, in such sharp relief uh, from other people because there aren't people who just go around blessing for no reason. Hey, man, you did a great job with that. Great work. Thank you so much. I mean, just genuine, kind stuff. And I know blah, blah, blah. Yes, I'm preaching the choir. But there's something to that. So over the summer, our goal is to have a neighborhood barbecue where we throw up some bounce houses and we get to know some more of our neighbors. And so the waving project is only step one. But you should see it. It's so hilarious. It's so hilarious. Nothing. Just nothing. Can you point us to some of the resources you mentioned this morning that we can refer atheists and agnostic friends to? Maybe add to the website? Sure. That's a great idea. Basic, and again, it depends how intellectual your friends are. If they just have basic questions, like Lee Strobel has this case for Christ, case for faith, stuff that's readable and easily accessible. And then you've got podcasts by guys like William Lane Craig that are just deep and philosophical. I mean, there's a whole range of things. So don't ever feel like if you're ever in a situation where you need recommendations, just email me or we can put some stuff on the website And there was a light from heaven. Um, sorry, the room just got really dark and it was funny. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, we can put some stuff on the website. But if you ever have questions, just email me and I'll be glad to. I have a whole bookshelf full of resources like that and podcasts that you can listen to. So don't ever be afraid uh, that there aren't resources out there. There are tons. All right, sound good? Boom. All right, let's do, let's do a little sermon. Right? You're, you're all just, that's, that's why you're here. Right? I mean, just Bible teaching. That's all you want. It's beautiful. That's really the whole point of the church, correct? No. All right, here we go. So we got this question several months ago. Andy, do you have that one? I emailed it to you this morning. There we go. 
how do we know Jesus is a real figure? How do, we, how do I know he raised from the dead? Evidence, please. You know what I say? Let's do some evidence, please. So I love, so I mean, in all seriousness, this is going to be a very boring next 20 minutes. Because I'm going to give the reasons why I actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. And it's a lot of PowerPoint, and it's totally boring, and so be bored. Because we don't gather just for this, right? There's more important stuff. But I thought this, que- this question was worthy of a, of a whole conversation, seeing as how what we're going to celebrate in two weeks is the resurrection of Jesus, and seeing as how we're a community that really welcomes questions and doubts. Uh, I thought this was worthy of uh, a conversation. All right, so here's what I want to do. There is a group of facts about the early church that the vast majority of historians agree upon. Even even secular historians, even very critical historians, these aren't just Christians saying, yep, this is what the Bible says. No, 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 there is a, a core of historical fact that the vast majority, now there are always outliers that say Jesus was never real and blah, 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 blah. But, but if you take mainstream scholars, Christian or not, they, there's agreement over, I don't know, I think it's like 10 or 12 points. All right, So I want to show you these. Next, Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus was buried. Now people disagree where. There are some scholars that think it was just in a common grave and that's why you know, they couldn't find his body. Jesus' death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope, believing that Jesus' life had ended. The tomb was discovered to be empty a few days later. All right, next. The disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Jesus. Now, do you see how that's phrased? So they're not saying that happened. They're just saying that the disciples obviously preached this, right, as a matter of history. The disciples were transformed from doubters who were afraid to identify themselves with Jesus to bold proclaimers of this message. And this message was the center of preaching in the early church, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Next. This message was especially proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus had died and was buried shortly before. As a result of this preaching, the church was born and grew. Interestingly, Sunday instead of Saturday became the primary day of worship. James, who had been a skeptic, was converted to the faith when he experienced the resurrected Jesus. Now again, they're not saying this is true. They're saying this is what James said. And Paul was converted by an experience that he likewise believed was an experience of the risen Jesus. So these, however many points, 10 or 12 points, most historians agree represent like the bedrock of what we can know historically. They're not saying that Jesus actually rose from the dead. They're just saying this is what seems to be true. This early band of followers proclaimed Jesus had risen from the dead, that no one produced a body, it was in Jerusalem, they were transformed, blah, blah, blah. Correct? Make sense so far? Okay, now, other pieces of evidence that seem to point to the idea that resurrection actually took place. Now, look at me for a second. Okay, look at me. There is an argument style that is called inference to the best explanation. That's what we're using here. You look at what you can show to be true, and then you find the hypothesis that best fits what you know. This is one of the ways I argue for the existence of God. I know that I'm free. I know that I'm moral. I know that I'm rational, at least some of the time. Is freedom and consciousness and rationality best explained in a universe with a God or best explained by a universe without a God? 
That's inference to the best explanation. So what we want to look at are pieces of history and then ask the question, what best explains those pieces of history? Make sense? Okay, so here comes a bunch of stuff. Next, there is an early, early creed that was central to the proclamation of the church. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, and then the twelve. Next. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, i.e. have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. This, scholars estimate, is one of the earliest traditions associated with the church. Next. There's evidence that this didn't originate with Paul. This was actually something that Paul received from the Jerusalem community. It reflects a very early confession of the church, received and delivered. When Paul says, for I received, I delivered, actually were technical rabbinical terms used for the transmission of authoritative tradition. Cephas is used instead of Peter. Phrases like the 12 or the third day were, were phrases that Paul never used. Paul is naming specific people that would have been known in Jerusalem so they could be confronted. And Paul's writing our best guess 15 to 20 years after the resurrection. So by, by 15 to 20 years later, this was the core of the message. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus has risen again. All right, That time frame is super important because people say that that This is legendary stuff that was made up over time when you can actually say, no, no, this was actually preached in the lifetimes of the people who would have either seen it or not seen it. Legend does not have time to accrue in such a scenario. Next. Other pieces of evidence, 1 Corinthians 15. The presence of eyewitnesses. Now, men and women, how many people were stoked to hear that Jesus had risen from the dead? Not many. There was a whole Roman apparatus that evidently had botched the job, and there was a Jewish leadership that was the leadership that had condemned Jesus over to the Romans. So here's the big deal. It's one thing to preach Jesus has risen from the dead 2,000 miles away, right, 100 years later. But to preach it 50 days later in the very city where he was assassinated is a completely different thing, correct? There were loads of people who did not want this to be true. So that is massive. And all anybody had to do to shut up the Christians was what? Hey, tomb's empty. Jesus is risen. What's the one thing you got to do? Oh, here's his body. Here it is. And Christianity never gets off the ground, correct? So there were people motivated to shut this sucker down the minute it started. One historian puts it this way. No one disputes that the Christian church began in Jerusalem just a few weeks after Jesus' crucifixion. It exploded in growth. And that the content of the message that caused this explosion was that Jesus was Messiah, the Lord of all, as evidenced by his miracles and resurrection from the dead. They do not present to their audience some unknown figure in the distant past. They're talking about one of their audience's contemporaries. Next. 
The tomb was empty. We know that. Why? No one venerated the tomb of Jesus. That was very, very common for religious figures of his day. No evidence of that. And the early, earliest Jewish leadership polemics against Christianity assumed an empty tomb. Every argument assumed that no one knew where the body was. That's why they said the disciples hid it, or that's why the Romans hid it. I mean, every argument assumed the tomb was empty. Next. I know, isn't this beautiful? I'll teach you to write evidence, please. The tomb narratives are written very simply. If you read the resurrection accounts, they're boring. I mean, they're just like, yeah, on the third or on the first day of the week, Mary went, and then there were some angels, and blah, blah, blah. I and mean, there's no theological reflection. There's no like, like incredible, like, ooh, this happened. I mean, we have an example uh, in the, uh, it's either Epistle or Gospel of Peter, uh, which is not by Peter, by the way. This was written hundreds of years later, where, where Jesus actually comes out with two angels, and his head reaches the sky, and there's this big cross that's being drugged behind him. And I mean, it's like totally, you could just fanciful. These narratives are just boring, right? There's just no like, oh, Mary thought he was the gardener. Oh, here's Jesus cooking them breakfast. I mean, it's just dumb, right? There's nothing like Star Wars about this. Later, legendary material leaves nothing unexplained, but the gospel narratives contain many puzzling features that the, the authors simply report but leave puzzling. Next. Okay, I just talked about that. Next. Okay, here's a huge one. Who are the first people to see the risen Jesus? Huh? Women. And as you know, how respected were women in Jewish culture? Not totally particularly when it came to court testimony. The only way a woman could testify about something in court is if she had the presence of an older male who would vouch for her testimony. So if you're inventing a resurrection account and you want it to really pack a punch, who are the first people that should have seen Jesus? The men. But what were the men doing? They were hiding. What were the women doing? They were courageously preparing the body, correct? So if you're making it up in that culture, the worst possible people to be the first eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus are women. And yet, universally, the women. Now notice 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't mention the women. I find that interesting. 15 years later, the women aren't mentioned there. But all the gospel accounts are like, no, 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 it was the women who saw him, and the women were commissioned to go tell the guys. I just find that fascinating. I can't overstate what a big deal that is. If you're making this up, that's not a detail you put in there. Okay? Or how about the disciples' lack of faith? I mean, read the resurrection accounts, and they're doubting the whole time. Right? The women had no expectation of finding Jesus uh, resurrected. Luke says that the words of the women who, uh, who appeared to the men, they thought they were nonsense. Mark um, 16, sates or states, that when the disciples heard the women's report, they refused to believe it. Next. If you're inventing this stuff, why do you include the doubt? After the testimony of the two disciples' experience on the road to Emmaus, they didn't believe in him either. Jesus reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Right? Doubting Thomas turns out to be one of the heroes of the story. I won't believe unless I see. Next. And then even this great passage, the Great Commission, 
It has this incredible thing. That, and all the disciples had gathered on a mountainside, but some doubted. Then Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So they're seeing him and they're still doubting. Why include any of this? Jesus' family didn't even believe in him during his life. I mean, why? If you're making it up, this is embarrassing material. Next. When they start naming specific individuals, yeah, there, there was this guy named Simon from Cyrene who carried the cross. Or there was this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. If you're making stuff up, you guys know this from the lies you tell, right? The less specific the lie, the better, right? If you start naming names, you've got to have a good memory. So the fact that people like this are named and Joseph was a man of relative standing in Jerusalem, I mean, just attests to the fact that there's, there's historical nuggets all throughout here. Next. The fact that all of the resurrection accounts don't agree is actually an argument that they're authentic. If all the resurrection accounts agreed on every detail, what would be the objection? Oh, they just copied each other. But the fact that one has one angel and another has two angels and one has one woman and one has three women and it's exactly the way you would expect independent witnesses would describe an event. Right? If you see a car crash and you've got somebody on this side of the road and somebody on this side of the road and somebody back here and they all give testimony about what they saw, is, the, is it going to be the same? Yes. But are there going to be differences in the secondary details? Of course. So the fact that the gospel accounts don't all agree in every minute detail is actually suggesting that these are independent accounts that were taken seriously instead of just collusions to erase any potential embarrassment. I mean, this is such a big point. Next. Yeah, we would suggest they plagiarized each other if they were all perfect. Next. Five independent sources talk about resurrection. Next. And then N.T. Wright. This is my favorite quote ever. If you were a follower of a dead Jesus in the middle of the first century, wanting to explain why you still thought he was important, and why some of your number had inexplicably begun to say he'd been raised from the dead, you would have not told stories like this. You would have done a better job. Right? You wouldn't have included, hey, the head of the church, Peter, let's have him deny Jesus three times. Right? You just wouldn't have done it. Next. Are you guys still out there? Some of you are bored out of your mind. Some of you are loving this. Here's the point. Here's the point. We don't do many like this. But I just want you to see some of the thinking that, that goes into, hey, why do we actually take this seriously? Is it just an article of blind faith, or is there something more to it? So again, we're going to say that all these things are true. What is the best explanation for them? All right? They have no motive to lie. Were they, were they warmly embraced and made rich for preaching the resurrected Jesus? Nope. 11 of the 12, at least, uh, we think were martyred for their faith. So if they were lying about it, that'd be an interesting maneuver. And then you have this Jewish sect that no longer does animal sacrifice, that argues the law of Moses has been fulfilled, that they move from worshiping from Saturday to Sunday, they redefine monotheism to actually include Jesus as Lord, as part of Yahweh, as God, and the emergence of communion and baptism. How do you explain these alterations by the Jews of Jewish stuff? Unless something was motivating sitting behind those alterations. Next. 
There was, next, there we go. There was nothing in the Judaism of that day that would, have, that would have predicted the disciples believing that one man in the middle of history was risen from the dead. Their general belief was that the day of the Lord, everyone would be resurrected. They had no conception of one guy resurrection, resurrected in the middle of human history. So this wasn't stuff that was latent in Judaism. Next. The disciples were transformed. Now, Here's where people say, okay, okay, okay. So let's say all that's true. Think of all the other explanations beside guy rose from the dead. So quickly, we're going to hit a few of these. Ready? They didn't know where Jesus was buried or they went to the wrong tomb. Now, a man of Jesus' standing, the Jews were ruthless in how they prepared people for burial. A man of Jesus' affection and disdain, everyone would have known where this guy was buried. The site of Jesus' tomb was known to Christian and Jew alike. So if it wasn't empty, it would be impossible for a movement founded on the belief in the resurrection to have come into existence in the same city where the man had been publicly executed and buried. It's impossible. Both Jesus' followers and the opponents of Jesus would have a motive for checking this out. Next. Again, the earliest Jewish arguments presuppose an empty tomb. And the authorities would have been all too happy to point out the disciples' error once they started preaching the resurrection if they had the body. Next. The twin theory. This is, these are all real scholarly theories. Jesus died, and then Jesus' twin brother showed up. Next. The hallucination theory that there was a mass hallucination. And anyone that studies hallucination tells you that hallucinations are very subjective, individualized experiences. You know. (laughs) You know. Come on, give me some of my 60s brothers and sisters here that lived through the 60s. They'll tell you about hallucinations. You do not not hallucinate in kind of mass, uh, mass crowds. Um, so, so, okay, I mean, I guess it could have happened. Next. Or another one um, that, that th- this was just made up. It was borrowed from other, there are other resurrection accounts of other ancient Near Eastern religions, so they just adapted this around Jesus. Problem is that um, many of the points we've already made, there's just not enough time between the preaching of the event and the event itself for legend to accrue. Next. There is a ton of Semitic forms of speech that, that negate the idea that they were just borrowing from other Greek myths. Next. Uh, yep, Gospels were written several decades after the events. The Gospels were written in a hostile environment that would necessarily hold in check the development of legendary accretion. Next. Got to watch out for legendary accretion. Yeah, you're not going to want to read that one Next. Next. So this is a big one. Uh, Jesus died, but he didn't die. He passed out. They thought he was dead. The coldness of the tomb and rest revived him. And obviously the, the problems with that are, okay, so he pushed the rock away, and then he convinced that he ha- was victorious so that the disciples would die for him. That's a, that's a tough one. Next. Now this is the big one. This is the one my philosophy professor, University of Michigan, gave me. 
He's like, I don't care how dumb the rest of the alternatives are. They're all more probable than a guy rising from the dead. Right? Right? I mean, come on. Dead people stay dead. That we know. (laughs) So I don't care how much historical fact you give me. Dead people stay dead. End of story. So I don't care how it happened. We just know that it didn't. Why? Because every other person in human history, once they're dead, has stayed dead, unless you're a fan of the walking dead, in which case the dead come back. But, so they will just say, listen, that's impossible. Now, the minute somebody argues that, we're no longer arguing history. What are we arguing? Philosophy. Because I have good independent reasons for thinking that God exists. And if God exists, surely it is possible in such a universe where God exists that miracles can happen. To which he would say, don't call me surely. To which I would say, surely it is possible. But do you see the difference in the arguments? I've been arguing history this whole time. The minute somebody says, yeah, but miracles can't happen, now we're arguing something else. Philosophy. And then we're in a whole new set of conversation about whether or not miracles actually exist. And if God exists, I'm open to the possibility that miracles can happen. Make sense? Next. Next. So here's a Jewish scholar that I thought just summed it up so well. How was it possible that his disciples, who by no means excelled in intelligence, eloquence, or strength of faith, kind of sounds like us, were able to bring their victorious march of conversion only after the shattering fiasco on Good Friday. In other words, how did it nevertheless come about that the adherents of Jesus were able to conquer the most horrible of all disappointments, that Jesus, despite everything, became Savior of the church? How can it be explained that against all plausibility, his adherents did not finally scatter, were not, for, were not forgotten, and that the cause of Jesus did not reach its infamous end on the cross? How could a proclaimer of salvation, the or three times disappointed, become the starting point of the greatest and most influential world religion? You have to explain that. If you believe God exists, if you believe miracles can occur, the best explanation, I would argue, is that, this, that something actually happened that first Easter. And that that is the result of a, of a genuine resurrection and that Jesus is alive and well today. Now, whether or not you agree with that, the question was, how can I know? I just want to suggest, open you up to the possibility that there are reasons other than just blind faith or this is the way I was raised, why people believe this stuff. There are lots of reasons why people don't believe this stuff. But here's the thing. For some of us, this is a faith strengthener. It's like, okay, yes, I'm not an idiot. (laughs) Maybe we're finding that out as we go. Hallelujah. For others of us, it raises even more questions. Great, that's fine. For others of us, we find ourselves in this like, okay, Like, my head says yes, but ah, I still don't know for sure. And that little for sure part, well, that's the part you're never going to get to. You don't get to that part in marriage. You don't get to that part with kids. There's no for sure 
in any dimension of human life except death and taxes. She's an accountant doing my taxes. She said she had bad news. But less bad news than last week. Right. right. I can invent some deductions right now if we need to. We'll talk about integrity at another time. Now, um, so if this is true, just one second, we'll head into communion. If this is true, what does it mean? It means two things. First, as we've talked about here before, the resurrection was never meant to be a heartwarming tale that there's life after death. The resurrection is meant to show that a bit of the final restoration and putting back together of human life had come forward in the person of Jesus and had blossomed right in the middle of the long winter of human history. That Jesus, and this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is what happened to him is what's going to happen to all of those in him and what's going to happen to the whole universe. There is newness coming. That everything that... that sits before us and scares the tar out of us, will not have the last word over us. And that the last word is resurrection, that God will speak over the universe. And so there is hope that we have because of this that answers literally every existential question that human beings have wrestled with throughout their existence. What happens after we die? How does this all end? What is there, where is there purpose and meaning? But there's also hope now because Jesus has risen from the dead. Meaning, Jesus is actively at work in the world. That same Jesus who healed people and dined with sinners, that same Jesus is still doing Jesus stuff. The same Jesus that healed, the same Jesus that forgave, that same Jesus is at work opposing the adversary, setting captives free. And so we have hope now and we have hope later. We have sadness in the midst of all this too, right? Because the final battle has been won, but its victory has not yet been fully implemented. So we face death and divorce and disease, mental illness. But it's not just hope for later. It's hope right now too. So here's what we're going to do. It seems fitting that the, the best response to this is to take the body and to take the blood, to take the bread and the cup in response. Because this is the core of what we preach. It's not just a memorial of a death. I mean, it, it's like, imagine there was a, a crew of people that had uh, electric chairs all around their room. And as part of their worship of their God, they would go to the electric chair and sit in it. Or imagine if they had guillotines around the room and the, they had jewelry with guillotines on them. Right? I mean, you'd think they're pretty weird, Correct? Correct? Yeah. So what's the bread in the cup? Oh, Jesus was crucified. He was tortured. He was tormented. He was terrorized. That's the center of our worship. And the only reason it can be called a celebration is the fact that the resurrection happened. So by taking the body and by taking the blood, by taking the bread in the cup, you are acknowledging that that was the price that was paid. Not only that, though, that this Jesus is coming again, and this Jesus is here now, and this Jesus 
is, I mean, and the resurrection of Jesus is the only reason why we can turn a celebration of an instrument of torture into jewelry and say that it's good news. So, as always, the tables are open. If you need gluten-free good news, it's right there. Next to the communion tables, we have a, a whole bunch of stuff. We've got the prayer shawls. Uh, we, this is uh, from a story where woman touches the hem of Jesus' robe. We put these out for those of us that pray for healing. We come up and we touch the hem of his robe just like that woman did and say, Jesus, we pray for your healing. We have these, um, these little uh, pieces of parchment where people write down prayer requests. And my goodness, are these heavy. Some write down celebrations of things they'd wanted prayer for weeks ago. Yes. No, Kelly, that's fine. It's fine. It's just, it's the... It's just the biggest part of the whole service. No, it just it was interrupted right here. Like, don't stop believing part two is what happened. And so you can roll up a piece of parchment and put it in the pieces of wood. There'll be a couple of folks over here who are alive and will pray for you if you don't want to wait to just be prayed for over the week. For those of you that are practicing generosity and warring against consumerism, there are participation boxes around the room if you choose to do that. Izzy just turned 21 this week, so look, she's, all, she's an adult now. And to celebrate, she wore shorts, which we, don't, we rarely see. It is, it's not scary, but okay. So anyway, that's our call to worship. Izzy's 21, I, 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 I think, okay. So let's pray, and then this is, this is our chance to respond. Um, for those of you that have totally checked out on all the PowerPoint, welcome back. Glad you're here. Lord Jesus, we pray to you because we believe you hear us. We worship you because we believe you are alive and well. We take the bread and the cup because we acknowledge the reality not only of your sacrifice, but of your victory over death and sin. And so we assemble this morning before you in weakness and in strength and mourning and in celebrating. We assemble, God, because there is something so powerful about sitting under the authority of your word, about taking the bread and the cup together, about filling our minds with words and images and songs that recapture our imaginations, of singing our prayers and being reminded of how good and faithful you are. And so, God, to that end, we now actively respond. And we pray that you would meet with us and you would hear the cries of our hearts. We bless your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. And you're blinding this poor guy with your guitar. It's the sparkly guitar. Cue Mike. It's Mike's turn now. I don't know where he is. Mike! this is an April Fool's prank. Anyways, fine, I'll do the blessing. All right, <laughs> will you all stand? It was a test. Okay, guys, thank you so much for coming. We love all of you. No, I was gonna do it. Do it. Okay, all right. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Amen. Uh, his, look at 21, ladies and gentlemen. 21, something changed.
My brothers and my sisters, have a great, great week. Thank you for being here. Um, VoxOC.com, check it out. We have a new to Vox dinner coming up sometime in April and the table fellowships. Goodbye. Make sure to get out first. Get out first. Everybody wait. All right, now go. Now go. Say goodbye to somebody or say hello to somebody as you're leaving. Hello, Mastellers. Hello. Goodbye, everybody. Don't stop believing, my brothers and my sisters. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.